Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Well, hello and welcome, everyone. Get on inside. You've made it to the China shop. We're back with another exciting interview episode. I'm Shopkeeper Dan. With me, as always, is Kyle, creator of FinancialNeptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? Doing good. Uh, I think people might be getting sick of me saying I'm excited about today's guest, but man, today I am excited about today's guest. Yes. First time we've had somebody who is an AI expert, and I think we've been wanting to get one on the show for the better part of a year now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. AI is the forefront of technology. And we are so, so super stoked to have Stephen Mathai Davis from QAI, a uh, Forbes-affiliated company. How are you doing today, Stephen? Hey, Dan. Great to be on the show. And uh, no pressure at all, guys. (laughs) For us or you? (laughs) (laughs) The AI already told him it's going to be a good show. (laughs) Right. So how did you get into AI in general then? Is that something you went to school for or just found an interest in it uh, through other, other work? Yeah, it's funny, right? So I started off my career in institutional asset management, and uh, there's been this ineluctable shift towards predictive analytics and smarter investing. Mm -hmm. So I I was naturally gravitating to it. I started my career more fundamental analysis and then found myself rapidly moving towards AI and other forms of advanced quantitative investing modeling. So that when I started to go get some of my advanced training, I had a real focus on behavioral finance and the application of AI to behavioral finance and investing. Hmm. Big words for saying, you know, you uh, application of AI to creating investment strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that the uh, the institutional firm you're working with wasn't interested in what you were doing. I had a lot of firms that were interested in it. At one point, I was running my own hedge fund that was using many of the techniques that we're using at QAI to invest in emerging markets. But the reality was, at that point, we were thinking about where was the next leg for us and opportunity to really changed things. And that's when we launched our my most recent startup that was sold to Forbes in November of 2019, Quantumize, which was bringing AI-powered and factor research to the average individual investor. Quantumize? I don't think I'm, I'm not familiar with that. What was that doing? It was a, a research site. Oh, okay. 
building uh, recommendations based on using AI and other factor research-based models. Well, we had a lot of success there, but it was a content-based company. And we sold it, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And that's when the Forbes team approached me about creating a new type of wealth tech app. That's exciting. I, I was looking through the uh, the website for, for QAI, and it's not QI like I was initially confusing in my head, the British television show where you learn interesting factoids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. One of the things I was really surprised to see is that you don't charge any fees. So I was wondering how you... Uh, like what the actual business model is then, if that's the case. Yeah, long term. So we're an advisor, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not a broker dealer. We're not making money off people's trading flow. Uh, Longer term, we think we're going to be monetizing a lot more on the risk management side of things. Mm -hmm. So we're going to let people trade on QAI using our investing strategies, which we package as investment kits. Mm -hmm. But we've put together some really advanced... Uh, hedging solutions and strategies that we think um, we'll be able to monetize longer term with. And, you know, think talking about QAI for a moment and just and forgetting about just the a- application of AI. Mm-hmm. Our mission is to bring institutional grade investing to the average individual investor through a one tap investing model. So, any of your listeners check out the app. It's pretty simple and easy, intuitive to invest in really advanced types of strategies that you only find at elite hedge funds and some of the elite investment banks. You know, the mission really is to democratize wealth creation. Mm-hmm. And we're not out to democratize finance. I'm not even sure what that means when people throw that around. Yeah. As somebody who's grown up in modern finance, <laughs> <laughs> as well as a kid, uh, since my entire family's in the business. Is that a slight at Robin Hood? I, I don't think it's to anybody. <laughs> I think it's more. <laughs> what can I say? It's, you know, that's the weediness coming out and saying, well, what does that even mean? Right. It was one of the jokes I had with our team as we were trying to come up with our mission. Really, our mission is really democratize wealth creation. Mm-hmm. And that's a laudable goal. It's an audacious goal, but it's one you can work towards. Right. That's actually tangible. And that's really what we're doing with QAI. And we're bringing institutional grade investing through the power of AI, if that makes sense. So what is the actual AI doing then? Well, there's a lot of AI occurring. So let me, mm-hmm. let's start at the investment kit perspective. Our investment kits are powered by our AI strategies. The, strategy, the AI in this case is determining what to own and how much to own of something. Uh-huh in a specific kit. So there there are two layers of AI occurring. One, what securities to buy, and then how much of each security that we want to buy, how much do you uh, own of it? Right. Then there's another AI layer, if you choose to use it, which is our AI-powered portfolios. That's really just doing asset allocation between different kits. Interesting. And then on top of it all is the AI that's driving our hedging strategies. Now, the actual AI that you're, you're referring to, is that like an actual like learning AI or is that uh, more like algorithmic? No, it's primarily deep learning. Yeah, okay. So we've been using quite a bit of deep learning. And when you get into deep learning, that's just a concept that's thrown around ubiquitously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're using different forms of it. At, at one point, we've got an ensemble. We, with some of our strategies, we have an ensemble approach. We're using multiple types of deep learning algorithms. Mm-hmm. I like to call it the wisdom of the algorithms to figure out which is the best stocks to buy. When it comes to AI, I've heard some fights between people over whether or not algorithms are considered AI. I'm curious what your take on that is. Is that a way to get in a fight with somebody who's like a you know really into deep learning? Ah, uh, that's interesting, right? Because um, it seems like there's a bit of a fight on like some of the YouTube videos I was watching on just different AI. I try to avoid theoretical uh, arguments because I think that's getting into like traditional machine learning uh-huh. and more of AI, like deep learning or reinforcement learning. Uh-huh. So I try to avoid that, those conversations. I wouldn't say that we have algorithms and if we were going to get technical, mm. it's really deep learning ensembles that are actually focusing on what types of securities to buy and what are the factors best driving 
And deep learning is where the the actual AI itself learns from his experiences or from the data you put into it, correct? That's correct. How does that work? Like, how does it, how do you write that? Like, that just blows my mind. Explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old. Well, here's how I would say it, guys. Okay. Take a look at what type of factors that drive price returns and what drives market returns. So we're Mm -hmm. looking at basic regressions. So we're looking at thousands of different types of factors because garbage in, garbage out, by the way. That's really what's important with AI. I've learned that. So once we figure out certain subset of factors that make sense, we feed that into a deep learning structure mm-hmm. where depending on what the model itself is, like I happen to be biased to recurrent neural nets without getting too much into the weeds here, that have a short-term memory bias mm-hmm. and look to see what the models themselves are as you tweak it, what the what the predictions are going to be for a different security. And I'm trying not to get too much into the weeds because I know, Kyle, you were saying stay high level. <laughs> you start to tweak it in terms of how the data is actually normalized, how the data is fed into the models, begin to tweak the model in terms of how the percent changes are actually calculated. And that becomes more art than science. I mean, that's actually the core takeaway from that. I never said high level. I think Dan said that. I'd be more than happy to go dive into the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that might not be very good radio. <laughs> I'm interested in uh, how is there, is there an AI level on QAI or time frame? Is this all for like, I'm investing for my retirement or can I throw some money in there and be like, Hey, day trade this. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, the answer to that question is neither uh, right now, at least the way the product's been created, it's really geared towards the best possible return irrespective of timeline. We don't do intraday trading because that introduces a lot of noise. So we yeah. tend to rebalance on a weekly basis. We did a lot of research to figure out what made the most sense. And based on all the data that we pull in, and by the way, we're pulling in a ton of alternative data, uh, we tend to restructure or rebalance portfolios on a weekly basis. That makes us very unique, right? Because right. most of the uh, other fintech apps out there, are they're not adjusting at all to real-time market moves. And you'll be lucky if they rebalance on a quarterly basis. Why is that, do you think? Is it just because that's uh, just more time-consuming? or No, it's just old-school wealth management, right? If you look at uh, Fintech 1.0, which were you know, the first generation of the uh, robo-advisors, they were just taking traditional wealth management models and putting a digital wrapper on it. We are attempting to build a 21st century company that's natively digital and holistic towards the online environment for millennial and Gen Z investors. Like the joke for us is that we're building the next digital BlackRock. Ooh. That's what we're building. That doesn't sound like a joke to me. It's not much of a joke. <laughs> that sounds like I want to see your company publicly traded so I can buy some shares. <laughs> yeah. Put us on the short list for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, think about it for a moment, guys. You know, if you look at the mutual fund industry today, three to four firms control over 75% of assets. Really? Look, and, you know, it's a $25 trillion business. The ETF business, it's $5 trillion plus. It's growing 20% per annum. About four to five firms control over 90% of assets. There's no product differentiation at all. Right. When you hear uh, money managers talk about investing, they refer to it as an asset gathering business because you really get no upside for being innovative. Huh. Now, think about what you're getting as the average retail investor. You're not getting anything. I mean, what the hell? Why am I being marketed 10 different large cap US equity mutual funds or strategies? Yeah, what's yeah, the what? difference? I mean, how many large cap ETFs are there? Large cap US stocks ETFs? There's so many. What's the difference? I mean, I'm a CFA. Maybe I'll kind of BS around, sing a song and dance around tracking her, but it's all the same shit. Uh-huh. Yeah. So for us, what we've been trying to do is create this new type of investing experience that really, uh, in my opinion, 
will be bringing investing for the average individual investor into the 21st century. Just the same way that the wealthy experience investing when they give their money to Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, or JP Morgan. Hmm. That's fantastic. Oh, man. Yeah, this is, this, uh, I know it's not quite a great analogy, but I was thinking of like Fundrise where you let like retail get involved in like some, some larger scale property applications or investment yeah. opportunities. And there's going to be a ton of innovation here. We're not going to be the only kids around the block trying to do this. Right. That we see the market opportunity. Is there anybody out there trying to do this too? I think there's some competitors who are trying to pivot to the space. I think our advantage at the moment is that we started from the beginning with a focus in this area. Mm-hmm. That's always a competitive advantage. Oh, yeah. Having a two-year, three-year head start helps too. Yeah, and you, with our case, before we did anything, we spent the first year just doing market research. So before we even built a prototype, we interviewed five to 7,000 real customers on Instagram, Facebook, and Reddit. Ah. And what was the, uh, the information you gathered out of that? Well, it was interesting, right? It definitely shook a few of my biases. One, nobody has any problems buying and selling securities. So they're totally fine with their BD experience. Uh-huh. So there's no innovation there. At least there's no innovation that would warrant you know, a startup focusing in that space. Two, nobody has any problems figuring out what to buy. Mm-hmm. The real feedback was, I don't know how much to buy of something. I don't know when to cut my losses or take my profits. And I don't know how to trade in what's becoming increasingly more, increasingly more volatile marketplace. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, well, you're describing portfolio management. That sounds very uh, similar to our experience over the course of doing this show, like what we've been learning where the real struggles are. Like it's easy to find something and have an idea, but it's knowing when to get out or when to take that profit that, that really throws everybody off. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I think you'd be surprised at the fact that people really haven't tried to tackle this problem yet. And maybe we're just ahead of the curve a little bit because we were speaking to real customers. Well, do they really want to? I mean, if you think about where the returns are coming from, from the people that know what they're doing, it's coming from the people who don't sell. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about startups, I just think it's mm-hmm. portfolio management's hard. That's been uh, part of our sales pitch. Mm-hmm. And when I was dealing with investors, it was, what's the opportunity? Portfolio management's hard. I think that's why you haven't seen a lot of innovation here. I do think based on what I was chatting about earlier in the marketplace. And the fact that you're going to have roughly $60 trillion being transferred to millennial and Gen Z investors over the next decade to two decades, there's going to have to be some innovation. Right. It's not hyperbole, say, the mutual fund industry as a whole. And we're throwing ETFs in here as well. Really hasn't changed since the 90s. Right. Yeah, strategies, at least funds, are still constructed, distributed, and sold the same way that they were in the 90s. And a lot of consumers don't realize that. They, they experience it. And that's why they don't like to necessarily buy mutual funds on the different platforms they're on because they already intuitively know that they're not really getting a lot of options. Mutual funds just seem like they've kind of fallen out of favor in general. Like I remember them being big when I was growing up and like you hardly ever hear anybody talking about them now. Industry itself is still growing 8 to 9% per annum, a $25 trillion industry. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Are you including ETFs with that or just mutual funds separate? That's just mutual funds. Really? ETF is $5 trillion and that's growing close to 20% per annum. Dan, who is it we were just talking to who was warning about the, uh, the ETF, all the assets being held by the ETFs is what he thinks is going to lead to the next crash? Oh, yeah, because the ETFs don't vote well. Uh, that was chiral Asseter. Right, there's no governance. Yeah. Ah, that's right. Okay, that was what we just did. 
Yeah, we just talked to him two days ago. Yeah. So when you when you sign up with QAI, then and you deposit some money, then you tell it go ahead and invest this for me. Like, what are the typical things that it's investing in? Is it like just picking stocks based off of uh, uh, its analysis, or are there like certain blue chips that you're trying to stick with? Or yeah, you know, the whole experience is a very bespoke, personalized experience. Uh huh. So when you invest in a different investment kit, you're investing into a theme. Some of the themes are longer term, some shorter term, mm-hmm. and some are really specialized. So we've broken our investment kits down into what we call foundational kits, which are the core kits you should have in any portfolio, maybe emerging tech, a value vault, global trends, an active indexer, which is just a way to play index returns, mm-hmm. index returns as well, just to outperform, smarter beta, which is a way to play factor rotations. Then we have specialty kits, which are just specialized micro themes. We like, for example, Guilty Pleasures is one of them. That's one of my favorite ones. Where you buy- <laughs> I love Guilty Pleasures. <laughs> hey, you wouldn't be surprised. It's one of the most popular kits on our platform. Is it really? Well, I yeah. guess it makes sense. Everybody wants it. Especially, it's anonymous, so nobody knows. Right. Especially when, uh, when the economy's not doing great, everybody reaches for those Guilty Pleasures. Absolutely. <laughs> and then we have our limited editions, which are short-term trades. So we have a pair trade going where we're long gasoline, short oil as a way to play the gas spike. Also hedging. Uh, we're going to be launching a new back to school trade in two, in two to three weeks, and these are time trades. So it's really the basket trade experience that you have at the elite banks that we're bringing to the average investor. What, what sort of returns are you seeing on these kits? Um, I want to be careful in terms of. Right, you can't promise that. Just generalized. If you come to our website and look at our performance, you will see that we're doing very, very well. All right, let me load that up while Dan asks another question. <laughs> So basically, you're saying I put ten bucks in, and in two months I'm a millionaire. That, that's that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not sure I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I do not say that. Do not hold me to that. Do you use QAI for your own wealth? Like, do you put money in and let the AI handle it yourself? Yeah. Well, or, more or importantly, you- I have my wife do it as well. The real stakeholder. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> there you go. There you go. I'm looking through the return page, and this is very impressive. Yeah, that's why I'm being very careful talking about it. <laughs> but if I could t- explain a little bit about the performance there, uh, I mean, I get a lot of questions, and we're going to start doing more webinars as we really come out of the gates and take the uh, beta tag up over the next month or so. Mm-hmm. What's driving that is because we're doing weekly rebalancing, and the models themselves are learning every day, right? Because it's more data is being funneled into it. Right. We're able to quickly pivot with market shifts. And because you're using alternative data, as well as options market data, futures markets data, we're able to make the models a little bit smarter in terms of predicting asset price moves, whether we're talking about ETFs and stocks. Mm-hmm. So if you interview a bunch of very elite hedge fund managers, uh, they would talk about how you can infer about stock market moves based on what's going on in interest rate markets, uh, futures markets, the options market. Mm-hmm. And all we've done is taken that experience and we've made it part of this customer experience for our users where they get to invest in strategies that are looking at the same things. And AI is just letting us do things with better probabilities. So I used to do this by hand for the portfolio managers I used to manage. When I say by hand, I mean in Excel. Right, right, right. (laughs) But now with the advancements in AI, you can remove me as the analyst and you have better probabilities. And that, that's amazing. Uh, what, what is the QI portfolio protection that uh, I see on, on these charts? What does that mean? Yeah, so that's a hedging strategy I was telling you about where we're using AI to do actually some pretty cool things. Uh, so you, you have a lot of hedge funds that are tail, what they call tail risk hedge funds where they introduce 
you know, strategies that frankly only perform well if there's a crash. Mm-hmm. So no one perform for three, four or five years. And then suddenly that one event happens and you get a big return. And they look like geniuses. Yeah, that's right. I've always used LinkedIn. It's crazy. It's like, these guys have just lost money for four years. Right. And there's huge opportunity costs. So when we were building portfolio protection, we tried to figure out, well, how do we use AI to make us smarter? So we're using AI to predict whether or not we think the stock market's going to go up or down, mm-hmm. the VIX is going to go up or down, interest rates are going to go up and down, oil is going to go up and down, and tech stocks in general are going to go up and down. And depending on what our conviction is and the sensitivity of your portfolio of kits to it, we might shift some of the allocation to cash. And if we're really high consensus that, for example, the market's going to sh- uh, drop, we'll short the market for you. Right. And we'll hedge out that market risk. So you're really getting this incredible experience that really only the elite high net worth individuals get at elite investment banks. And Forbes isn't trying to shut you down? <laughs> if they're promoting you? <laughs> like yeah, what, what, what is going on? This goes against everything I thought about the world. Forbes, it's been pretty awesome to have us as the strategic backer, right? It's the natural convergence of uh, financial media and financial technology. I'm curious how uh, that conversation went. Like, you, you, uh, Well, you said you started with another um, company that you started, a research company that they inquired yeah. purchased from you. What went into that? Like, Was that uh, like just the best day of your life or was that uh, a nightmare of like six months of legal no, it was one of the best days of my life. Uh, I just It was incredible partnering with the Forbes team. How did that conversation go? Uh, conversation was always very easy. It was, wh- where do we think the market was going? Where did I think Wealthtech was going to go? And it turned out they had similar perspectives. Mm-hmm. The next question was, can we build a product to take advantage of it? And our consensus was, well, let's go find out. Yeah. And then the rest is history, right? We went out, we people, we were able to leverage the Forbes.com presence as a way to get in front of more people, use that as a brand recognition. And obviously, you guys can imagine it's going to be a core part of our acquisition strategy going forward. Uh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the dream. So net for me, it made a lot of sense. And, you know, if you take a step back and look at the wealth tech space, this has been done before, right? You know, the Comcast Ventures backed Acorns. Uh-huh. So that everything with CNBC, and I don't know if you guys sometimes see uh you watch CNBC at all, there's Acorns ads everywhere and presence everywhere. Uh-huh. It's because they're backed by Comcast and NBC Ventures. Interesting. No pressure on me, right? To deliver. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? No pressure. <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how, how it can get monetized beyond using its own AI to, to best. Like if, if there's no fee for me to sign up, like is it just you put up some venture capital and let the AI build it? No, over time, we're going to look to manage, monetize some of the risk management, like portfolio protection. Um, we're going to create some hedge gear. So, for example, let's say you have a 401k with Vanguard, mm-hmm. uh, but you, you're, limit, you're very limited with what you can do in your 401k. Well, we can build a hedge kit for you in QAI that's going to use the same technology that we're using for portfolio protection, and we'll hedge your exposures in your 401k for what we call a, a microsubscription. Interesting. It's all part of the thesis that investing is moving towards, at least money management in general, is moving towards what we call the Netflixication of investing. <laughs> Does that mean you're also going to cancel everything after a season? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about that, <laughs> but you know, it's going to go from free to freemium. Right. Uh, Netflix isn't on your stocks, is it? Um, it should. It can sometimes show up in a few. Actually, yeah, I guess it would be a good short sometimes. Well, it's definitely. It's certainly, I mean, could show up in a few of the others. Like a short, we have our short squeeze kit, which has been a play on overly shorted stocks. Uh-huh. 
I don't know what short interest is right now on Netflix, but it's very easy that for that stock to show up there. Right. I was looking at your, um, the, I guess it's on the Forbes site. Looks like a list of blogs that you guys have written. So you guys are also making content too. Yeah, we're aggressively increasing our content presence on Forbes.com as well as on our Learn Center on TriQ.ai, where we're putting what we call investable and snackable investing content. Um, one of the, one of the ones that popped up to me was Revlon because we were just talking about that uh, a couple weeks ago about them filing for bankruptcy and then watching it shoot up. Oh yeah, what was the reason for that? I'd like, I'd like to see you go into that because we've seen that a couple times. <laughs> yeah, why <laughs> is that? Just because everyone who's been short of it, waiting for the bankruptcy, is now closing out their positions, or it's usually a short squeeze slash you know you think there's going to be some value extracted from the restructuring. But I want to be careful. I'm no longer a fundamental analyst. <laughs> Ah, okay. (laughs) So I want to be careful of any storytelling along with that. But I would say, (laughs) usually, you know, you sell, you buy on the rumors, sell on the news. Uh It certainly applies to situations like Redline. Is Wall Street bets, uh, is that part of the QA? Are the the AI's um, inputs looking at the the, the stuff that they're talking about on there? Absolutely. We've been active in uh, Wall Street bets going back to my old startup, Quantumize, back in 2015. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, we at one point we were very- Wow, so you were an early adopter of monitoring social media. Very much so, and very much an early adopter of monitoring chatter on Reddit. Interesting. Well, I, I wish I had AI to do that for me because there's a lot of inane chatter on Reddit. <laughs> oh, God, there was a really good thread I saw in there talking about AI, like analyzing Reddit, and then that makes a decision to YOLO the entire portfolio on zero data expert <laughs> the SBY calls <laughs> like 10 minutes into the close. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that really happened, but uh, there is always some trepidation on like AI uh, just because it being new that there may be some pitfalls in there. Are there any protections that you have in place to kind of prevent it from like going off the rails? The best protection you can always put in place is have human oversight. Uh-huh. So we're always looking at the models week to week to make sure that we are in agreement with what the models are doing, not necessarily as a check, but really to make sure that it's not going off the reservation. Right. And it's led to very strong outcomes because it's caused us to go in and tweak what the models were doing. Add it, yeah, add it. not only is the AI learning, but you guys are learning as well as the, the keepers of it. In terms of how we're putting factors into it, what factors are actually creating more noise. Uh-huh. That's really important. Garbage in, garbage out is really important when you think about the application of artificial intelligence to anything, but in particular to the stock market. The market's always been a tough one for me. I always wondered if, if AI did have a future in this space just because it is so emotionally driven. Well, markets tend to be non-stationary, right? Which means they're not, it's, there are regime changes that occur at week to week, month to month. Mm-hmm. I've actually found that artificial intelligence or the application of predictive analytics is more effective than you using human fundamental analysis to figure out how to build a portfolio. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about, you know, is the stock going to go up or down, how much the stock is going to go up, but using artificial intelligence to construct a portfolio system right. to invest into, I think um, it definitely finds a lot of application. Now, are there any concerns of uh, a QAI uh, becoming self-aware and maybe taking everybody's money and, <laughs> and launching nukes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, not at this point, but whether or not I'm building the next Skynet. <laughs> How do you answer that question? Because it's really hard not to ask it. <laughs> I try to avoid it because it leads to more jokes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Dan, what do you got? I'd like to speak 
more on your experience as a black belt and competitive kickboxer because that seems to be a theme with the finance guys. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Why is that? Yeah. We just talked to an MMA guy. We talked to another guy who was a kickboxer. Yeah. Oh, no, like legit. I thought it was unique because of that. Jeez. In fact, one of the guys (laughs) we talked to, he says he actively recruits people from the space. I I don't know if I'd make a habit of actively recruiting people from the space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did it through most of my teens and 20s. It definitely shaped (laughs) the way uh, I approach things, certainly. Dad, are you trying to turn this into a MMA podcast? No, I'm trying to set up Two Bulls in a China Shop sponsors the financial fight fest where we just get a bunch of finance guys fighting each other. <laughs> some white, some white collar uh, MMA, right? Oh fuck yeah, I'd watch that. The Thriller in Vanilla. <laughs> I've got a fiber old son. It's like you know the family. The family sport he's already taken to uh, boxing and it's beginning to kickbox since he's combining punches and kicks. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. and, of, and of course, you're such an easy target, right? Uh, usually he's running after my wife and my in-laws, so it works out for me until everyone starts yelling at me. Let's take a trip back to your Back to your past. Uh, when you first started out, it looks like you worked for a couple different uh, financial groups. You worked for Piper Sandler, Sadler as a trader. Yeah. Uh, same with Sunridge Capital. What was your what was your role with those companies, and what, what does that mean? Like as a trader, what was your day to day? My day to day, at least when I started off in investment banking, was as a market maker. Um, oh, trading Nasdaq and NYSE stocks. This is kind of ancient times, in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great experience for me because this was when the transformation to electronic trading was occurring. So I got to see that or live it for a few years. How big of a shock was that? For me, it's it was the norm, right? So that's why I'm very comfortable uh-huh. with what we're doing with QAI. Uh, I'm not sure for people who were moving from analog to digital what the experience was for many of them, but certainly it's informed my career and, and it's given me tons of insights you know, 15, 20 years later as we're building this digital asset management company to understand settlement and clearing and how it relates to trading and portfolio management. So it was invaluable experience for me. Mm-hmm. And then you went to Pinebridge and worked as a research analyst. Yeah, I was a research analyst and portfolio manager. It was first AIG Investments and then Pinebridge. Real quick, before we, we move on too far past it, uh, I would like, this, you're the first person we've talked to that's actually like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was a market maker. What is the big difference between somebody that's just running client orders and being a market maker? Like, how does that functionally different? The market Makers actually were required to be out with bids and asks that you had you we were the guys building the market around a stock. So they say it's Amazon. I was required to be out at a price that I was going to buy Amazon stock at and sell Amazon stock at. So you, and it was my job to help manage that risk around that for the trade desk. So as the market maker, like when you look at like the options and like a, it's a, a asset that's not really traded too heavily, and you see like a really wide spread on the bid and ask you're the guy who was coming up with the uh those wide spreads i was the guy putting in the wide spreads and you better believe i kept kept it wide otherwise the head of the trading desk would have my head (laughs) 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 but um the more interesting thing is for me and this is going back to ancient times is i got to see 2008 uh, the the crash around 2008 2009 from both angles right um when i was yeah and then which was backed by uh Anchorage, which was that huge financials hedge focus hedge fund, 
I was putting on all the shorts oh. going into the crisis. And then, you know, that's when I left for about a year to run my dojo and uh, pursue a professional kickboxing career. And I like to joke when I was coming back, I was looking for, you know, a job where there would be a different level of pressure. So I said, I'm going to go work at AIG Investments and literally joined AIG Investments a week before the birth crash. Oh. So I have a unique perspective on all the characters you guys know about in 2008, 2009 on both sides of the trades. Well, shit, we got to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, I cannot. I, I had. I don't even know what I signed in my early right. mid twenties, but I'm sure it's tons of confidentiality <laughs> agreements. Uh, so, how come nobody made a movie about you then? They made a movie about Michael Burry and his big short. It sounds like you were shorting around the same time. Uh, I knew a lot of the guys that you know the big short that were mentioned in the big short, and a few of the guys who were not mentioned because they wanted privacy. Interesting. They just didn't want to be like because Michael Burry you now they got that right. Like every time I see him on Twitter now, he's like, the market's going to crash. <laughs> uh, Michael, he's a bit of a perma bear, right? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. But there are a couple of other guys who value their privacy. Mm-hmm. Which I think it's important. And what are their names and address? No. <laughs> <laughs> Name, just names and emails. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There you go. Do they want to talk to us? <laughs> See, I, I didn't. I didn't realize asking about your market maker days was such a loaded question. Um, do what are the parallels that you saw in the two thousand eight, two thousand nine to what we're going through now? Uh, well, I don't think it's the same thing, right? The, it was leveraging the system. You, you, you could you could see that coming. Mm-hmm. I kind of reject the argument that people didn't see that coming, considering I was with a bunch of folks who saw it coming maybe a year, year and a half before it did. Um, right now, I think this is just more of a resetting evaluations, especially in tech. Because now, right, I'm in this fintech startup space, and I've even spent time talking with our team about it, because people have asked about what this means. And uh-huh. I, my perspective was, valuations just got totally disconnected in the venture market from economic value. Mm-hmm. It's just a resetting. Yeah. I'm actually not as bearish as other people about a recession. The economic data does not point towards a recession. It just points towards a deceleration in economic growth. Really? Yeah, if you look at aggregate demand, which is a measure of the U.S. economy's strength domestically, uh-huh. mm-hmm. it's growing faster than real GDP. And we're talking in real terms, right? Adjusting for inflation. Right. Yeah. So GDP is going to capture the impact of exports to emerging markets, you know, Europe, et cetera. But we're focusing really just on aggregate demand. Aggregate demand is still very strong. And you're seeing that in the retail market. Right. But what about with the uh, the Fed like uh, reducing assets on their balance sheet? Like, isn't that like a major red flag? And you consider from '08 to now, basically, we've been pumping you know trillions of dollars of liquidity into the markets, and then now that that money's gone. Unless you think the Fed is going to be completely derelict and tank the entire economy, they're going to be doing it in a very organized fashion and structured way. Mm-hmm. And listen, you know, coming into the year, and we talked in November, December, uh-huh. I thought it's going to be a pullback. So we actually optimized it. We were talking about AI and the oversight there. I was working with our quant team to really focus on downside, downside performance, maximizing concepts like the Sortino ratio, which is how do the strategies perform in down markets. Mm-hmm. Going into the beginning of the year, we were telling people to go into our precious metals kit, buy the inflation kit we were building, play the safe. Now, fast forward to now, the market is, at least from a PE perspective, kind of coming in line with normalized levels. Mm-hmm. Peg basis, which is how much we're paying for forward growth, it's at a discount. Is it time to sell the market anymore? I'm not sure about that. 
I'm not telling you to pour all your money into <laughs> right. S&P 500, but is the S&P 500 too, uh, too overvalued? I don't know. You're better off putting your money in the QAI. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it all comes back to QAI. Yes, it does. We we spoke for a long time. We we made fun of Tesla's valuation price to earning. It's just disconnected from economic value. Yeah. It still is. Yeah. By the way, Tesla's a great company. I drive a Tesla. Do you? Yeah, I do. I'm a big fan of the company, but valuations disconnected from at least valuations were disconnected from the economic value that was going to be generated over the next year to two years. So what do you see for the next six months then going forward? What do I think? I, the market's going to probably drift a little higher going through the summer months. So right now we're putting together this back to school trade, which is looking at retail and tech companies that are going to do well as people go out shopping to send their kids back to school. It's a cyclical trade that happens every year. Don't ask me why this constantly happens. It's like the go-to trade of Wall Street in September after Labor Day. And I was looking at the growth numbers, and it's just incredible the the uh, discounts to growth that all these major companies are trading at. I'm talking about Apple, mm-hmm. Walmart, Target. I mean, just from a valuation perspective, they look fantastic. So looking into the second half of the year, I, I just think you're going to start to see a trend up. Every time uh, the Republicans take the House back, typically you see a little bit of a bounce back in markets as well. So I, I probably expect that this to happen. Also, the markets Dan and I have talked about too that seem to enjoy having a Democratic president and a Republican-controlled Congress. That's usually the best combination. And I think the reason for that is just because that means nothing's going to change. And you know, <laughs> when things are when things do change, it's usually very bipartisan. Right. <laughs> So what does QI or QAI think is going to happen over the next six months? That's well, the real question. Well, QAI, remember, we're trading week to week, so we're not looking out six months. As we're oh, okay. That's right. That's right. So you don't even have like a long-term thesis going on there. You're just actively analyzing what happens in any given week and then rebalancing. We always look week to week. We try not to stay, try to look out six months, three months. It's not really predictive, right? There's just too many uh, unknown unknowns. Do you plan on uh, expanding that capacity in the future, or is this just uh, the the strategy that you found that works performs the best? Uh, looking into you know the crystal ball potentially, <laughs> and our product offerings. I, I would say, based on all the academic research I did previously, and then our experiences with QAI, mm-hmm. the predictiveness, at least in terms of the application of artificial intelligence and other advanced quantitative models, it, it loses its predictiveness as you get further out than one month. Sounds like the weather predictors too. Yeah, right. That's why the joke is with the when you hear the weather, it's the it's really only a day out that's predictive. Right. No point paying attention. <laughs> uh, do you do anything with like emerging markets, or do you stick more with uh, like U.S. equities? Well, we'll trade emerging markets stocks and ETFs that trade in the U.S. Uh-huh. So we trade a ton of ADRs, and then we do have some of our kits that own emerging market ETFs. Like for example. Our global trends kit, which is to kind of mimic global macro, mm-hmm. it goes long and short. You know, develop market stocks, emerging markets, develop Europe stocks, going long and short um, through ETFs. By the way, uh, debt markets in emerging markets as well as in developed global markets. So it's giving you that flavor and that experience there. Mm-hmm. But but it's all part of a global trend strategy. And how many kits do you guys have uh, in the uh, portfolio to choose from? Live right now, we're in well north of 20. Uh-huh. I think we're probably always going to manage between 30 to 40. 
just given on the market timing. Recently, we've launched a bunch of long short strategies that we thought were much more effective for the current market. So long US markets, short, you know, develop Europe and the world, mm-hmm. a long large cap, short small cap, long tech, short the S&P 500, which we just released. Things like that is a way to play the relative performance. You guys know about my favorite, which is long gasoline, short oil. That's what I talked about earlier. How does that trade work? Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. We're buying uh, the gas ETF and we're shorting for the same amount. So it's a, it's what's called dollar neutral pair trade. We're shorting oil. Uh-huh. Is what we're saying is that gas prices <clears throat> over the next few months will relatively outperform oil. So that if prices for oil come down as well as gasoline, the prices for oil will drop faster than they will for gas. Similarly, if they're rising, the ri- the prices for gasoline will rise faster than they will for oil. And that, I mean, that's that's the way it always works, isn't it? <laughs> right. And that's explained that. You guys are like, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Like, oh, I watched oil drop $20 and, and the gas prices are still the same. They haven't changed yet. Yeah, it's still paying out the nose at the pump. Yeah. Gas prices tend to be stickier on the way down mm-hmm. and tend to reprice higher more rapidly. Are there any other pairs that you like that uh, follow kind of a similar pattern? Um, well, obviously, large, large cap, short, small cap makes a ton of sense based on everything we just talked about in the macro environment. Mm-hmm. Um, because small caps tend to outperform in a go, go, go growth environment. In a slow growth or negative growth environment, large cap will always outperform small cap. That makes sense, too, with interest rates going up because that's never good for growth. Absolutely. And then another one that I like, I, I, which, which was the first pair trade I talked about, long U.S. large cap stocks and short develop Europe mega cap stocks. And the thinking here is, look, if we're going into a global recession, the U.S. economy is weakening, the economies of France, Italy, Spain, mm-hmm. and Germany will weaken quicker. And we can all agree on that. I would think, yeah. How do you express that trade? Here's a trade to do it. You see how simple it is. It's our limited uh, micro theme. You just... One tap, boom, put a couple hundred bucks into it. And let's see how it rolls. Is there any limit to how many different funds you can, uh, or investment kits you can invest in? No, there's no limit to the number you can. Some kits require a minimum investment, a little bit more than $100. Mm-hmm. But that's just by you know, trading minimums that we have to manage. Oh, shit. I think I might be signing up for this as we talk. <laughs> I, I'm really liking this uh, okay. thesis. And now at least you know, you know who to email if there's a support ticket issue. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, where did my money go? <laughs> what do you guys got planned for the future then? Well, I'm really excited about our hedge kit integration that we're going to be rolling out in, through a partnership with Plaid, mm-hmm. 3Q, early 4Q. And then two, I'm really excited about our integrations with some of the broker dealers where we're going to let folks connect their brokerage accounts and we're just going to send the trades directly to their brokerage accounts. Oh. So let's say you have, account, you have an account with E-Trade. And by full disclosure, we don't have anything. There's no discussions with the moment with E-Trade, but I love using them as example because I think they've got a great trading platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a brokerage account with E-Trade and you want to sign up for QAI, you just connect your E-Trade account to QAI and then we'll just trade for you. I like that. And you're t- always in control. Right. I think it's going to be a great way to really empower customers to really experience a QAI investing experience. I think that's a fantastic idea. That's God, what was that was one of the first uh, people we talked to, Passive, which did uh, just a simple rebalancing. I think that was all that they they were really offering. They weren't putting together kits like this. This is more of a, you pick like you basically your own ETF that you want, and then this uh, company would 
<laughs> basically tell you when it starts to drift and then execute the trades if you allow it yep. to uh, to bring it back into balance. Sell, sell the ones going up. Yeah, for us, it's part of this vision of having a custody less or brokerage less asset management experience. Mm-hmm. You get to access elite asset management experiences and solutions through whatever brokerage experience that you want. Well, I got to say, we're a little bit worried for your health and safety. So uh, make sure you kind of keep in touch with us. So <laughs> as if one, you're trying to democratize wealth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, two, you're also using AI, which everyone's terrified of to begin with. <laughs> but I really like the direction that you, that it looks like you guys are going. And I love, I love what I'm seeing so far. And I plan on actually trying to open up an account with you guys here in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know who to call and blame if uh, Skynet's released. <laughs> right. If it's Skynet, at least uh, maybe I'll be like on its good side because I'll have invested with him. <laughs> Nobody thinks about that side of it. Like if Skynet happens, like you want to be on the robot side. Fair enough, touche. <laughs> Don't smash your toasters when they go bad. <laughs> Send them to toaster retirement. Uh, Dan, do you have any other questions you want to ask? Yeah. Is Would you say that QAI is, is meant for the younger generations that, as, as you mentioned earlier, going to have a lot of wealth transferred to younger generations happening, uh, or, or cause I have some friends that are, that are older in different states of ready to retire or already retired. Is it, is it something like if you say like, Oh, I've already got my retirement and fidelity, uh, would, is it something I could just recommend somebody like, Hey, you might want to think about switching over to these QAI guys. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when we were designing it, we were really focused on like the market opportunity, which was mass affluent Gen Z and millennials as an undeserved uh, market. Mm-hmm. But interesting is that we've seen a lot of demand from older demographics as well. People have their monies with Fidelity or Vanguard, places like that. They're looking for a more active experience. Right. So if you're fi- with Fidelity as an example, it's like, you know, I'm looking for something a little bit more active. The hedge kit solution that I told you about makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. We all know it's you're better off hedging. It's where can I get something like that? So how do you do it? Yeah, that's the part that everyone struggles with. Yep, because it's really hard to throw away money on uh, far dated puts on the spy. Absolutely, and you lose you lose a ton of money doing that. Right, but if you let uh, you know you let an app do it, then you don't ever see it, and then maybe it's a little less painful because it may still be the right decision. It's just hard to execute it, knowing that what you're buying is protection. Yeah, one of the, uh, speaking of options, one of the major product releases we're going to have coming down the road is going to be managed options trades, where we're going to actually manage options trades for customers through options kits. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to be a real game changer. Are you going to do futures at some point too? Maybe a little Forex? Maybe Forex. I don't know about futures just because of the uh, amount of capital required. And the insanity of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From an investing standpoint, I'd love to do it. I just don't know based on who we're targeting, if that makes much sense. Right. All right. Uh, Dan, if we don't have anything else, uh, Stephen, if you'd like to tell everyone uh, one more time where they can find more about you. Sure. Um, You can learn more about us at triq.ai. We're both in the Google uh, Play Store as well as the Apple iOS Store. Also on Forbes' website. Absolutely. Just (laughs) QEI Forbes and you can find find out all about us. And then uh, your socials? My socials for uh, Twitter is at QAI Invest. That's QAI underscore invest. Mm-hmm. You can also follow me on Twitter at S. Mathai Davis. And you can also follow us on Instagram at QAI underscore invest. We'll have links for everything in the episode description. So if you don't have a pen and paper while he's reading those out, uh, we'll make it easy for you at all to find. 
Yes. Uh, Stephen, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'd love to maybe get into more some of the nitty gritty, like how to actually program some of these things, but I don't think that would make for a very good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting entertainment. Now that I have your email, maybe I'll just start bombing you with <laughs> how to write a trading algorithm. <laughs> uh, Dan, you got anything you want to say before we uh, wrap this up? No, I don't think I can top that. Uh, Steven, this has been fantastic. I'm, I'm very, very glad we got you on the show. And I absolutely, absolutely recommend QAI. After speaking with you and checking out that website, I'm uh, excited. Like Kyle said, I'm excited. I'm excited to put some money in and get started. I know, right? <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, definitely, uh, when when you have some more uh, things happen and some of those things in the future start coming to pass, uh, give us a shout. We'll, we'll definitely try to bring you back on so you can kind of update everybody where you're at. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, if you have nothing else, Dan, you want to take us home? All right, folks. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Uh, we Appreciate it. Hope everybody learned some amazing stuff. I know I did. Uh, unfortunately, we do got to close up shop, but we will be back at you soon. Until then, happy trade. Goodbye. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.